We have Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the Lord, or the law of the Lord, and on his, the law, on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. All right. Well, good morning again, church. Uh, this morning is, we're exactly in the middle of our, our seven-week series that we've been in as a church called Draw Near. And before we jump into Psalm 1 that we just heard read, I wanted to give a, a little bit of context as to why we are in this series, in this season, in the life of our church. And I can think of at least a couple of things. Uh, the first is that one of our values as Sound City is enjoying God. And this series really is a series about how, how we can do that, about ancient practices that help cultivate our relationship with the Lord, because we believe that the best life is lived in his presence, walking with Jesus. And so that's the first reason. But the second is because we also have a value here as, as a church of uh, everyday mission, like we just heard a little bit about. And if you're wondering, okay, well, how does this series connect with that value? Uh, It really does, because often throughout the Bible, before God uh, releases his people into the world on mission, he often um, calls them into a season of strengthening their walk with him. Uh, So Jesus, right before he launches his public ministry, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days to have space to reflect and pray to his father. Uh, Paul, before he launches any of his missionary journeys, he goes off to Arabia, we believe, for about three years to study the scriptures. God often calls us to a season of drawing near before he, uh, and as he sends us out into the world. And as a, as a church, as I've gotten the chance to have more and more conversations with um, uh, you in the community, I really do get a sense that one of the things that God wants to invite us into and wants to uh, stretch us in as a church is growing in everyday mission. Um, I, I believe and I, I hope that in the days to come that God will use our church to reach many people with the love of Jesus, to introduce them to his mercy and grace like we sing about uh, every Sunday. And so as we um, are continuing in this series, my my invitation is that you would continue to ask the Lord, how might you be calling me to draw near to you in this season for the sake of my own joy, my own walk with Jesus, but also for the sake of the joy of others and those that God has put us in. Uh, in contact with. So just wanted to um, give a little context there. Let me pray one more time for um, our time in the word, and then we're going to jump in. Lord, I do thank you for the chance that we have every Sunday as a church to worship you through song, to hear the word taught. And God, I pray that in this moment that you would um, give us hearts that are receptive to your word. And Lord, I pray that you would 
whatever obstacles might be in the way, whatever things that are on our mind that could keep us from hearing what you want to say to us today, Lord, I pray that you would make those clear and that you would remove those distractions enough so that we can hear what you are trying to say to us and um, the ways that you're ultimately trying to comfort and give us and show us love this morning. We love you, God. We thank you for the scriptures and how they point us to Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, uh, to me, one of the most alarming passages in all of the Bible is John chapter 5. Jesus has just healed a man who has been so disabled for 38 years, he was unable to walk, and yet he does it on the Sabbath, the day that God told his people, uh, you must not do any kind of work. And so when the religious leaders of the time figure out what Jesus has done, they are very upset. Uh, In fact, they are so angry that they begin to plot to take him out, to end his life. And so Jesus, knowing what they're up to, he confronts these leaders, and here's what he says to them in John chapter 5. He says, his voice, talking about the voice of God, his voice you have never heard, right? His form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me, and yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And I don't know about you, but as a follower of Jesus, those are very alarming words because these men that Jesus is talking to knew their Bible better than you or I will ever know our Bible. They had the whole thing uh, memorized. And yet Jesus says to them, he has the audacity to say, you have never heard the voice of God. Now, the reason I bring this up is because last week, if you were here, we we talked about the important practice of listening to God's voice through his scriptures, opening our ears to his word. But here, Jesus seems to be saying, well, there is certainly a way to do that that draws you nearer to the Lord. There's also a way to do that that um, drives you further away. See, these religious leaders that he's confronting here, they suffered from what uh, I sometimes like to call candy apple syndrome. Do y'all have candy apples in Washington? Okay, okay, I wasn't sure. We have a lot of fairs in Texas with fried food and stuff, uh, so I didn't know. But a candy apple, in case you didn't know, is like a big popsicle stick with a giant uh, apple on the top of it. And that's who these religious leaders were. They had a head full of scripture, right, full, minds bursting with information about God, but their life was not influenced by that information, right? They had a transformed head without a transformed heart, and that is a sobering thing for us to come to grips with, to know that we can be in all kinds of different Bible studies. We can have our morning devotionals every single morning. We can even go to seminary, and yet, for all of that, be deaf to the voice of God. And so the question that uh, I want us to to think about together as a community today is, uh, what makes the difference? 
Right? How do you engage the scriptures in a way that draws you not further from Jesus, but actually um, further into Jesus? And I think the Bible's answer to that question, at least a key part of the answer, is that we have to learn how to meditate on God's word. Not just listen, but meditate. We have to create space to receive his voice. But for those words to draw us nearer, we have to also learn um, this key word that we just heard read in Psalm 1, what it means to reflect, to meditate. And so if you have a Bible, go with me to Psalm 1. It's the beginning of the Psalms. It's only six verses. It's a pretty uh, short chapter. But in these six verses, we're going to see the, the blessings of meditation. We're going to learn something about the practice of meditation, how you actually engage it. And then the main obstacle to meditation that we have to overcome. So the blessings, the practice of it, and then the obstacle that we have to deal with. So if you have a Bible, Psalm 1, starting in verse 1, first we see here the blessings of meditation. Uh, the, the, the very first word of the psalm, and actually the very first word of the entire book of Psalms, is the word blessed. Verse 1, it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now the word uh, blessed here, if you look it up in any Hebrew dictionary, the first word that actually pops up is actually happy. So you could say it's almost happy is the man, right? Happy is the woman who learns how to meditate, but the happiness here, it's not this kind of, you know, giddiness where you're just floating on cloud nine all the time, like we sometimes mean by happiness, but rather this deep sense of joy, this holistic well-being. Uh, and the psalmist kicks off the entire book of Psalms saying that if you want that kind of blessedness in your life, you have to learn how to meditate, right? If you want to be a kind of person, that others look at and, and say, you know, I'm not sure what it is about him or, or her, but it seems like they've found the, the, the secret to the good life. Well, this is the path. And in verse 3, the psalmist gives us a, a word picture that fleshes out what he really means by blessedness. He compares those that meditate to a tree. He says, the person that learns this is like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. Now this image, it points us, I think, to at least two things, two aspects of this blessed life. And the first one is the promise of stability. We all know if you're, you know, walking at a park or you're going on a hike, there's much more to a tree than just what is above the surface, right? There's this, this deep network of roots underneath that you can't uh, quite see that keeps that tree from getting blown around by the elements. But the psalmist says this isn't just any old tree. This is a tree that's actually planted by a stream of water. Now, why is that significant? Well, um, this was written in Israel, And if you've ever been to Israel, you'll know that for much of the the year, it's almost like a desert. It's a pretty arid place. It's very prone to droughts. And so if you're a tree that's just planted in a field, if there's a drought, you might not be blown by the wind, but you might wither up. But if you're planted by a stream of water, then there really is no um, weather that can take you out. 
For a tree planted by a stream, the heat doesn't really matter. Sure, rain would be nice. What tree wouldn't like a nice downpour? That's why there's so many happy trees here in Washington. But this tree doesn't have to have it because it has access to this other source of life underneath the surface. See, if you're like uh, me, our, our natural tendency, my natural tendency, is that whenever some kind of instability or stress or chaos comes into my life, I tend to think that internal peace will only come if I can put my external circumstances back in order. And so when there's a disruption, we immediately think about the things that we can do to kind of adjust the weather of our lives. It's why many of our prayers tend to be, Lord, change this situation over here at work or in my relationships or bring this trial to an end. And, and hear me say, those are great prayers. We should pray those things. We, we must pray those kinds of prayers. But oftentimes, If you look at the the whole testimony of scripture, the way that God helps his people face the, the poor weather of our life is not by changing the weather, but more so by changing us to make us into the kind of people that can be stable regardless of what kind of weather comes into our life. See, to be a, to be a weather dependent person is to be like the chaff that we read about in verse four, right? Chaff, in case you didn't know, it's that little paper thin husk on the outside of a seed. And the great thing about chaff is that it is very stable if you put it in a vacuum or there's no wind at all. But if you put a piece of chaff out into the real world, what's gonna happen? It gets blown every which way by even the slightest little breeze of wind. It gets swept along. But the psalmist says, if you wanna be like an immovable tree, with its roots deep into the earth, with the source of life, then meditation is the path. It doesn't mean that you won't get blown around by storms. It won't mean that you won't lose a branch or two every once in a while, but you will not be completely uprooted. So that's the first thing. This, This blessedness, it is a stability in the midst of bad weather. But it also, second, means a life of fruitfulness. Right? Verse three, again, it says that this tree, it yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And when the psalmist uh, talks about fruitfulness here, he's basically talking about a, a productive life. I don't know about you. Uh, hopefully this is true of you, but I have certain people in my life that anytime I'm around them, anytime I get to spend um, uh, some time with them, I feel much more filled up when I leave their presence than when I first stepped into their presence. Anyone know people like that? Hopefully, yeah. Where when you come into their sphere, you leave not more drained, you leave more empowered or more encouraged, more built up to do the things that God is calling you to do. What's happening there? Well, you are experiencing a fruitful life, right? Out of the abundance of who they are as people, you are being nourished, right? You are being fed. And the psalmist is saying, if we want to be like that for other people, then we have to learn to meditate. Meditation, it makes you into a a person of great wisdom in a very shallow culture. It makes you a person of substance, in a world that is very flaky, a person that has something to give. 
a fruitful life. Now, the thing that's great about the Bible is that it's extremely realistic, and you see it even in this verse. The Bible is not a simplistic book, if you ever read it, spent any time in it. It does not uh, boil down life to just one principle, and the reason why I say that is because it says here that you will bear, bear fruit, but you will bear fruit in your season, right? In due course. It doesn't say that you will yield fruit in every single season, uh, but only in season. Even when we're drawing near to God, it does not mean that there will always be visible growth, that we'll always see fruit. Just like trees in the winter, they, they lose their leaves, the fruit falls off. There's seasons of abundance and great growth, but there are also seasons of apparent inactivity. And it's important for us to remember that before we get into meditation so that we won't, we won't be discouraged when we don't see change in our life. Growth is seasonal, but if we persevere, the psalmist says that growth is inevitable. Right? It's seasonal, but it will take place. You will yield fruit and have productivity in your life. So if you weren't convinced before, hopefully you're a little more convinced now of the blessings of meditation. If you want a life of stability, you want to be like a tree that has fruit, we have to learn this way. So the question is, okay, well, what does that look like? What is meditation? That's a good place to start because we don't often talk about meditation all that much in church circles, but here's what it is. Let me give a definition. Meditation is essentially the practice of reflecting on God's word until it begins to move from your head down into your heart. Right? It's reflecting deeply on the voice of God till it moves from our minds into the rest of who we are. The, the word for meditation here in the, in the Hebrew, it literally means to, to murmur or to, to mutter something over and, and over again under your breath. And the idea is that as we, if we hear God's voice, we take what we hear and just like you do with a cough drop, you know how you roll it over in your mouth, you flip it every such way until it dissolves and works itself into the whole of your body. That's what we do with God's word. We, we murmur on it, we mutter on it, we reflect over and over again until it ceases to be just a fact and begins to be a reality that informs the way that we live. Meditation takes something from head knowledge and it makes it into heart knowledge. In church, I hope you see how radically different those two things are. Knowledge of the head and knowledge of the heart. I heard a, a pastor share a story uh, once about it that really uh, helped this sink home for me. He said that he had a, he had a, a brother-in-law once. And that brother-in-law, when he got into the car, he would never wear a seatbelt and his friends and family always would uh, give him a hard time and say, hey, don't you know the statistics? If we get in a wreck and you don't have your seatbelt on, uh, things are not going to go good for you. You're going to die or else you're going to be, you know, gravely injured. Put your seatbelt on. And this family member would say, uh, I know, I know, I know all the statistics, but he would never change his ways. He would never, you know, buckle up. Uh, in Texas, we say click it or ticket. Isn't that catchy? Washington can adopt it, I'm sure, for a, a royalty. Um, so he would ne- it would never change. But then one day, the brother-in-law, he gets, 
into the car with some of his family members, and without anyone asking him, he clicks the seatbelt. He buckles up. And so they ask him, well, what changed? And he said, well, a couple of weeks ago, I went to the hospital to see a friend who got in a car wreck that didn't have a seatbelt on, and he had uh, 200 stitches across the front of his face, and ever since then, I've had no problem buckling up. (laughs) In fact, I do it with great joy. No one has to tell me at all. Now, what changed for this man? Did he get new information? No. Rather, the information that he already had became new to his experience. It stopped being this abstract proposition and began to be a reality that informed how he lived his life. And that is the difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. Right, what Jonathan Edwards said, he said that the difference in knowing that God loves me and tasting, experiencing the love of God is as different as having an intellectual belief that honey is sweet and tasting the sweetness of honey on the tip of your tongue. Right, haven't you had that experience as a follower of Jesus? Right, you're reflecting on God's love God's power, his wisdom, maybe in a devotional time in the morning, or maybe you're discussing it with your community group around the table, and suddenly this verse that you've read a hundred different times before comes alive, it jumps off the page, and it pierces like a javelin to the center of who you are, and it changes everything in that moment, right? What's happening? You're not learning something new, rather something old is becoming new to your heart through the power of the Spirit, and that is what meditation does. And you see it in the Psalms. Psalm 42. David writes, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He crowns you with steadfast love in mercy. What is David doing in these verses? He's not studying the Bible. He's not saying, observation one, God is a God that is loving and merciful. But then he's also not talking to God in prayer. He's doing something in between Bible study and prayer. He is meditating. He's already examined God's word, but now he is allowing God's word to examine him. He's read the word, but now he's letting the word read him. He's talking to his heart. He's saying, don't forget, heart, what you believe about God. How should you be feeling if the God of the universe has crowned you with such love and mercy? Right? Listen, heart, flesh it out. Don't forget what you already know. And that's what meditation is, is reflecting on his word till it begins to move from our head into the rest of who we are. And so how, how do we practice this? What does this look like practically in our life? Well, I think there's a, a few different principles, but a couple in particular that we, we see here in the psalm that I think are important. And the first is that our, this meditation that the psalmist is inviting us into is not reflecting on any old thing that comes into our mind, but rather it is reflecting on the law of God. Verse 2, he says, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And it's this focus of our meditation that distinguishes Christian meditation from other forms 
of meditation. Many uh, Eastern forms of meditation today, they're kind of in vogue, especially in a place like Seattle. So maybe you've, you know, heard more of a focus on things like transcendental meditation. There's a lot of celebrities that are into that or, uh, you know, centering or mindfulness techniques. And all these forms are really growing in popularity, but they are very different than the kind of meditation that David or, or whoever wrote this psalm is inviting us into here. Uh, Ed, Ed Clowney, in, in his book on meditation, he says that Eastern meditation, it's, it's mainly about emptying our minds of reality. It's trying to transcend any kind of rational thought at all. But Christian meditation is much more rational. It's not about thinking less about things. It's actually about thinking more about them. It's getting in touch with reality more fully by focusing our attention on the things of God. See, if you're a Christian in this room, if you feel um, paralyzed by anxiety at times, or you're in a season where you feel um, like hope is far from you, the problem is often not because we are thinking too much, it's that we aren't thinking enough. Right? It's not that our mind is, is too full of information. It's that we're not reflecting and meditating on the right realities about who God is, about all the things and all the gifts that we have in Jesus. And in those moments, uh, escaping from reality, if that's your approach, it only goes so far because eventually you have to step back into the real world with all of its stress and all of its demands. Now, what we need is not an emptied mind. We need a renewed mind, Paul says, a mind that fills itself with more of the truth, not less of the truth, as we believe as followers of Jesus. So that's the first essential thing. Our meditation has an object, the scriptures, the the revelation of God. But then secondly, and this is, been really helpful, practically speaking, for me. We, we meditate on God's law, but then the most helpful way I've, I've found into meditation is that we meditate through asking questions, right? We meditate through questions. Remember the, the word here, it means to, to mutter under your breath, to, to mull over, basically, the same truth. That's, that's the idea, and, and the picture that the word kind of invites is almost this image of a friendly self-interrogation, right? Like you're, you're putting yourself on the witness stand, not in a, not in a hospital courtroom, but just as a, you know, a deeply curious friend maybe over a cup of uh, coffee. And it, the idea is we're questioning ourselves in light of some truth about God to figure out what that truth should mean for how we live the rest of our life. And again, this is what David does in Psalm 42 that we just read. Notice he says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Right? Why are you so disturbed within me? Right? He's trying to understand his heart. He's trying to understand why he's feeling the way that he is in light of what he believes about God and not in some simplistic way. He's really trying to understand his own motives. And it's this kind of self-examination that often, I would say, is missing when we come to the scriptures. I think it was part of what was missing when the religious leaders came to the scriptures. See, one of the the great strengths of our 
stream of Christianity, right? Christianity has lots of different streams. We're um, Protestantism. This church and millions of others are the product of that stream. And one of the great things about that stream is that we highly value being accurate, understanding God's truth. And I'm so thankful for that. Hear me say that. That's as it should be. What is the Bible saying? But I do think there's a danger that can come with that. And the danger is that if we're not careful, we can slip into believing that the right understanding of God's word is the end-all, be-all, instead of seeing Bible study as the means to the end of something more, namely becoming more like our Savior, Jesus. See, I grew up in a tradition that taught, okay, you want to be transformed by God's word? Here's what you do. Observation, interpretation, application. Right? You've got to outline the chapter, understand its historical significance, look up the meaning of these words, and when you arrive at the core truth of the passage, you're done. And don't misunderstand me. That's super important. That's what I did to prepare for this sermon. We all need to be equipped to do it. But the problem comes when after you've done all that investigative work, the investigation stops, and you don't let the word investigate you. When we do that, it's almost like you're preparing Thanksgiving meal, right? And you spend hours setting up the table and preparing everyone's plate and cooking all these amazing dishes. And as soon as the table is set, you pack up and you call it a day and you go home. Instead of lingering at the table and savoring the thing that you just prepared, letting it nourish you, letting it work its way into every cell of your being, That's what meditation is. Bible study is preparing the meal. Meditation is eating and tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Eugene Peterson, he said it like this. He said, meditation is quite different from merely reading God's word. This is not so much an intellectual process of figuring out of meetings as it is a physical process hearing and rehearsing these words as we sound them again, letting the sounds sink into our muscles and bones. And then he says, meditation is mastication. It's chewing on the scriptures, not just preparing the meal. It's putting our roots down deep into the waters that we just discovered. And for me, when I began to, to see this, the Bible study isn't, it's a stepping stone to something else. It actually made it much more easy for me to approach the scriptures. Because before I'd think, I don't know if anyone else can relate to this, before I would think, okay, I only have 10 minutes to open up my Bible before I got to run to work. And that's not nearly enough time for me to understand everything about this passage that I need to understand. So I might as well not try at all. Maybe I would, maybe next week, right? When I don't have such a busy week. But when I began to see that there's more than just one way to approach the scriptures, that really began to free me up. And And I hope that that is a freeing thing, especially if you're in a really busy season of life, right? If you've got little kids running around the house or you're in a season with quite a bit of stress, 
I hope that can be an encouragement to know that, yes, there are really important times to bring our investigative tools to the scriptures and and dig deep, but there are also times and seasons to open up the Bible to a familiar passage. Psalm 23, since we're in the Psalms, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And to sit down for 10 minutes before the kids wake up or to, to go on a hike through the woods with that ringing in your ears, or, or to, to write it down on a note card to reflect on for the whole week. In fact, if you're here this morning, I know there's some of us in the room where it's like, okay, what's the practical, what's the thing I should do this week with the sermon? Here's a great exercise. Get a three-by-five note card and write down a, a short passage of scripture. Right, write down a verse that you feel God has for you in this season of life and put it on the dashboard of your car, uh, put it on your bedside table, put it in the kitchen. And for the whole week, read the verse and ask yourself questions about it. You're meditating. If I believed that the Lord is my shepherd, right? I, I do believe that. Part of me believes that. But if I believe that he was my shepherd with every fiber of my being, how would my life look different? How would the emotional landscape of my world change? Okay, it says here, the the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, meaning I I have everything I need, and yet, do I feel that way? Do I feel like I have all the things I really need in life? Okay, no. Why don't I feel that way? What what is going on inside of me? You're, You're meditating. And the great thing about meditation is that if you do that, if you ask yourself questions about the truth of God, it is the most natural thing in the world to um, uh, pivot and begin to praying all the, begin praying all those things back to the Lord. Tim Keller calls meditation the bridge between Bible reflection and prayer. And that's actually what we're going to be talking about next week. Pastor John is going to be talking about um, responding to the words of God after we reflect on them. So we've seen the blessings of meditation. It has the power, not overnight, but over time, to make you a stable person, a person of fruitfulness. that the practice of meditation we looked at, but then last, there is an obstacle to this practice, and it revolves around the word, in uh, verse two, delight. Right? Blessed is the person who delights in the law of the Lord. And the reason this is an obstacle is that oftentimes when we um, stop only examining the word of God and we allow it to begin examining us, we don't always feel delightful. When we're meditating on God's grace, sure, that's a delight. But what about Matthew 5? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is leading people in a meditation on the Ten Commandments. And here's what he says. He says, you have heard it said, that you must not commit adultery. But then Jesus says, okay, let's think about that for a little bit. What's at the root of adultery? Well, it comes down to greed, right? It comes down to jealousy. It comes down to desiring someone that has not been given by God for you, which means that if you even look at another person with lust, you're guilty of adultery because it's the same root. It's just that you haven't been... um, 
uh, put in an environment where that root was able to grow as much as the person that actually acts on those things. See what's happening. He's meditating on the law of the Lord. He's thinking out its implications, and we're listening, and it's not making us feel better. Right? It's making us feel worse. See, there's a very real sense in which the more we come to the Bible and we begin to meditate on it, the more broken, and let's be frank, the more wicked we see our hearts to be. And that is an obstacle. Because in verse 5 of this psalm, this short psalm ends with the writer saying, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So what do you do with that? Well, I think it all comes down to what you and I believe the law of the Lord is ultimately about. That's what we're supposed to meditate on, but what's at the core of the revelation of God? We talked about this a little bit last week, but if you see the Bible mainly as a book of rules that you have to follow to find life, then meditation will never be a delight because the more you meditate, the more you will see how far from God's ideal that you are, but that's not what the Bible is mainly about. You remember what Jesus said to the religious leaders? You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. In other words, you can find life through obeying them, but it is they that bear witness about me. In other words, the Bible church is not, it is not mainly about how humans can be made right with God in their own efforts. It is about how God has come down to us to make us right with him. Jesus is the center of the law, right? Jesus is the fulfillment of the law of God. The scriptures are about him and only when your meditation eventually leads you to his feet will they ever be able to make you into the blessed men and women of Psalm 1. And here's why. When you look at Jesus, what do you see? You see the perfect man of meditation. He was always delighting in the law of the Lord. He was always reflecting on the scriptures, always using the scriptures to to help him navigate even the most dire circumstances of life. He says at one point, I am so in tune with God's word that I literally can't take one step outside of his will. He was like a tree planted by a stream. He was always stable. He always knew what he was doing. He was uh, living a life of fruitfulness. No one ever lived a life more fruitful than Jesus. He was the embodiment of Psalm 1. And yet at the end of John's gospel, Jesus, the great tree, whose roots stretch deeper into the waters of God more than anyone else in history, you know what he says? He says something quite unexpected. He says, even though I'm the greatest tree of all, I am thirsty. Hanging on the cross, Jesus says, I thirst. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. I'm dried up. You know what he's saying? He's saying the waters of God's presence that I have been drawing from, from all eternity have dried up. 
They're gone in this moment. At the end of his life, the perfect man of meditation is experiencing none of the blessings of meditation. He's being blown around like the chaff. He's writhing on the cross, right? He's he's withering up. What's happening? He is experiencing the judgment of our wickedness. He's experiencing the consequences of my failure and your failure to delight in God's words. He is receiving what we deserve so that we could be welcomed into the congregation of the righteous and be known by God. The psalm ends, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Church, he perished so that you could be known by God in the most intimate relationship possible. Right? The great tree who spent all of eternity with his roots down deep into the stream of his father is uprooted so that you and I could be planted in the soil of his love and so that we could be changed into the blessed kind of people that he made us to be. And it's only when that becomes the center of our meditation that God's law becomes a delight. So as we come to the scriptures, look at him loving you, right? Look at him dying for you, looking at him crying out, I am thirsty so that you could be nourished. Only when that becomes the center of our meditation, Psalm 1 embodied, when he is at our side, only then do our meditations become a delight. Let's pray, church. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you've given us the scriptures, not just to give us really big heads. We, we want to have big heads. We want to uh, have minds renewed with the truth, but we want to have really big hearts, Lord. We want it to change everything about us. And so God, teach us what this, what this means, that you perished, that we might be known, that you are uprooted, that we might be planted deep into the waters of your love and know that when we see ourselves failing to embody your scripture, there is grace and forgiveness and embrace. We love you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.